Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, May the 17th, 2018. This is episode 2,221. So it's 2221 today on 5-17-18. So we've got 2221 and 1718 in the uh, subject line of the show. That's a weird pattern recognition thing that people like me that are weird with numbers like to notice. Uh, so uh, we'll have a cool show on Monday, right? 2222, but we will not have 51818 because, well, you know, have a weekend in between. So it ruined my numeric pattern. Yeah, I know, I'm weird. Anyway, guys, look, we have a really cool show today because this is a listener call show. This is where you either go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on contact and use the speak pipe to send me your question or comment through the magic of the interwebs or you pick up your phone you dial the think line 866-65-THINK 866-65-THINK you leave me your uh, question or point there and then you'll probably hear yourself on the air right now I only have a few calls for next week so if you call in over this weekend or into Monday there's a really good chance if you follow procedure you will get on the air What is the procedure? Number one, if you're calling, please call from a quiet location. Or if you're calling from a cell phone, which most of you will be, make sure you have some bars on your phone so you know if you have good signal. Uh, then when you get the little voice message thing and you're ready to leave me a voice message, make your point or ask your question. One sentence. It, it, start out with you. My question is, but up. Then give me your details. That will be most likely that I will understand your question and you'll get on the air. What do we have today? We have some cool stuff. We have a question on growing plants in a shady marsh-like area. We have talking about walking to freedom with a reluctant spouse. We have controlling insects on fruit trees. We have using business cards to grow a business. We have getting water to a high point with solar, or say option B, which is what I'm probably going to recommend here. Getting Ethernet out to one of your outbuildings. Pellet guns for backyard squirrels and wicking beds with gray water. We'll have all of that more right away because we have nothing else in our intro section today. So let's go ahead and take your first question. This one is actually a twofer on plants in shady marsh-like areas and walking to freedom with a reluctant spouse. Hi, Jack. What will grow in a mostly shaded, wet, marsh-like area? Details. I live in the Bay Area of California, the East Bay specifically, so zone 9AB. My property slopes down towards the back fence. I dump my ducks' water tubs that way every other day. The back fence line is mostly shaded and is very wet year-round. Is there anything that will grow well there? A bonus would be if it were vining in some way to trellis up the fence. Also, my wife is from here, and I'm having trouble convincing her we should move to a less controlling state. Any words of advice would, or encouragement would be great. Maybe some sort of quick public service announcement kind of thing. We both listen to you regularly. Thanks for everything you do. Mike. Well, I guess the question is how bog-like. So I have a link in the show notes for you, man, that uh, is a whole list of bog plants that grow in bog-like environments that grow in the shade. Most of them are ornamental-type plants. And I guess you could play with some stuff down there and even make it more bog-like, do some reeds and stuff like that. 
But I'm really glad that you threw in the comment of it'd be great if it trellised up the fence. Because when people ask about plants, generally my mind has toward um, doing something edible. And really wet and really shady and edible tend not to work that well. Now, if you did want something edible that will probably do okay in the shade, because I've had it in some shade-ish environments and it's done well for me, um, in bog-like environments would be water chestnut, if it's bog-like enough. Uh, extremely productive, and if you don't get a lot, it doesn't matter, and it will definitely overwinter in your area. Uh, and the other one that you might do okay with, that definitely is not native to your area, but you know maybe you've created a microclimate where it will do good, is groundnut. Those would be things to check down there. Um, those are both tuber crops, obviously, so they have to be dug up to harvest them. I don't know if you're looking for that, but that was a little bonus I'd throw in. And as far as the marsh-like plants, there's such a long list of them. Uh, I'm just going to provide you a note, uh, a link in today's show notes. Let's talk now about the second question, which is far more complicated, right? Rocked and spouse with walking to freedom. Uh, there's there's some things that you need to think about, and, and since you both listen, maybe this will help the conversation start between y'all. Uh, number one, when somebody says, well, the person's from here, so they don't want to leave, then I, the, my first uh, concern for that is their relationship with their family. If you have a, a person in your life that has a very tight relationship with their family, you don't really want to be the one that took them away from that. Um, and it's... It's not an easy thing to leave family behind. It really isn't. It's not an easy thing to leave good friends behind either. So if that is part of the issue, then I think that you need together to look at that, and it might be a no-deal type thing. Um, you know, When you marry into a family, you marry into a family. So that may be the case. However... Um, I think a lot of times people remain loyal to family members who would not be loyal to them in return if they had the opportunity or the desire or dream to go somewhere else. And maybe you should at least consider the options. So I would say what y'all really should do is have a long talk about what you really want in life. And then determine how to get that. And, and so it's not so much a focus on do we stay or go from California. It's a question on what do we really want and how do we get it. And can that work with California or doesn't it work with California? Because, there, you know, California has a lot of bad going for it. It also has a lot of good going for it from a climate standpoint and some other things. Uh, you know, it's a place where you can go to the beach and the mountains in the same day. That's kind of nice. Wine country is beautiful. And the whole damn state's really wine country as long as you're not way up in the mountains. In reality, even though it's not what they call wine country, you got redwood forests. I mean, you, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's pretty nice, except for the government and the people in the cities. Um, however, if you actually have a conversation that ignores geography initially, what do you want in your life? And then the two of you go about the goal of obtaining that you may determine that the best course of action is departing the borders of the state of California, or you may determine that there's a way to have more of what you want within those borders. And I think the only way to have that conversation and be genuine is for both of you to meet on the level there from a standpoint of we are both in this for each other, 
And we both want the other person to be happy. And this relationship cannot be all about you or all about me. It has to be about us. And us has to come before everything. And even with some of the attachment to family, this is something that I think husbands and wives struggle with in our modern era where we've tried to make everything proportionally equal across the board. Women and men are the same. You know, kids and adults are the same. Uh, what have you. Fat people are the same as skinny people. Everybody's equal. Everybody's the same. And everybody's not equal. And everybody's not even equal within the dynamic of family relationships in a proper family. The highest loyalty among family members needs to be between spouses, period. And I know that might sound like Jack just went all archaic and you know traditional family values and getting religious on you or some shit like that going back to the dark ages. No, I don't care if you are two people, modern hipster ass socialists, or if you are the complete conservative evangelical or anything in between. For the family relationship to be right, the highest loyalty must be between the spouses in a family. When, when you grow up, you leave your parents. When your kids grow up, they're going to leave you. If they don't leave, you did your job wrong. You did your job wrong. If your kid's 26 living in the basement or his old room that he grew up in, you have not done your job right. And it should be quite before that date that they are ejected out, but I'm giving you some leeway there just to feel better if you're in this situation. Your kids, by the time they're 20-something, like one or 20 in a day, should be out living their life. Okay, what that means is in a, a familial relationship, if you give your loyalty as father or mother to child, you are putting your loyalty to the one that will leave you rather than the one that has sworn by some level of their belief in a God or higher power or the state or you that they will be with you till death. This is not what we do. We put our loyalty there. If we put our loyalty to mom and we're dad in the family, so we, uh, we put our, if we, if the husband puts his loyalty to his mother, that'd be the wife's mother-in-law, you will destroy your marriage. If the woman puts her loyalty to her mother, the husband's mother-in-law or father, you will destroy your marriage. Now, I'm not saying to be disloyal to all those other family members. The highest level of loyalty must be to your partner. That is what a marriage is. A marriage is two becoming one, and you don't have to have any religion to believe that. That is why you've chosen to be married. It's not because it's what you're supposed to do. It's not because society thinks so. I met this person, I will give myself 100% to them. And if you do that, then it is impossible to be in that relationship unless you are an incredibly selfish person and not care what the other side wants. And that has to go both ways. So instead of having a conversation about leaving the state of California, the conversation I would recommend is the conversation about what the two of you most want. And then you need to make two lists. And on that list, and it might be actually the easier one to make, and it might precipitate getting the other one that's a little harder, everything you both agree you do not want, which might be like a really big house payment. Huh. That may change where you live California, or maybe it just changes what part of California you live in. Maybe there's compromises there. I don't know. You have to make the list first. Lots of debt might be something neither one of you want. I hope so. 
right? Um, whatever it is you don't want, make that list, and then everything that both of you have on your list, put on a, on a, the final list that says, we both agree that no matter what, no matter where we live, no matter how close we are to your mother or my mother, no matter how close we are to the beach, how close we are to the mountains, how close we are to XYZ PDQ, it doesn't freaking matter. We don't want this shit. Okay? And then you make another list that says, we both agree, we want this stuff. And then you make a plan in your life, remaining loyal at the highest level to each other above everybody else, which doesn't mean we throw everybody under the bus. It just means... My happiness with you is more important than my happiness with my freaking mom. Period. End of story. Zero other options. My happiness with you is more important to me than my happiness with my best friend Tom. Period. No other options. That doesn't mean we don't have our own things. That doesn't mean sometimes on a Saturday I don't go play golf and you don't go do whatever it is you're going to do. It doesn't mean any of that. What it does mean is my highest level of loyalty, my highest level of dedication, my highest level of devotion is to the person I have sworn and upholded by my own free choice, not due to being expelled from a birth canal, okay, but by my own free will and choice to be with for the rest of my life. It goes there. And when two people take that approach, let me tell you what happens. They win in life. They win with money. They win with the type of children they raise. They win with the way they influence their community. They win in everything they do. And the reason we have such a high divorce rate, sure, there's aggravating factors in it like, you know, the, 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 the system of divorce that advantages a woman, period, and makes a man pay for her existence and advantages her toward the custody. That doesn't help. The welfare state doesn't help. The concept that it's just okay to just squirt kids out doesn't help. But in the end, we're adults and we make our own decisions. The thing that is destroying the family unit in America is a belief that, well, since I had a child, my child must come first in a marriage. No, your spouse comes first in a marriage. A belief that, oh, I owe it to my mother too. No, you owe it to your wife too. You owe it to your husband too. And then you find the time to accommodate others. You owe it to your spouse to go out even after you have children and find a sitter or whatever and spend time with them. And so what starts out is the question, how do I talk to my, house about, my wife about leaving California? How do you talk to your wife about building the life the two of you want together? That's the key. And if you do that, you will either come together to realize that we can make a future here or we are better off in our loyalty to each other making a future there. And you, this is the, this is the difficult part. She must start detached from the concept that the end result will be California and you must start with detachment from the concept that the end result will be leaving California. You must both start in good faith with each other because you owe it to each other to develop a plan for life. I had no idea this is what I was going to get into when I screened this question out today, but I'm glad I did. Uh, I hope this helps more than just y'all. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. It's Aaron from Red Oak, Texas. I was wondering what I could do to protect my peaches from insect damage. Details. 
I have a peach tree that is producing for the first time this year, and it seems that it's already got a couple of uh, insect holes on the fruit. I was just wondering if maybe your garlic pepper tea spray would work on that or if there was something else I could use that would keep the insects off. Thanks. Keep up the good work. So peaches are one of the more common pest-ridden plants, and uh, what you usually see with these uh, worms uh, that get in them is you'll look at the peach, and when it's only even maybe halfway developed, you'll start to see these little uh, jelly-like hard bubbles forming on them, and a lot of those peaches will be not quite as good as you would like them to be, and some of them will be fine with a piece or two cut out. And it all depends on how bad the infestation is, how big a deal it is. Now, um, my uh, recipe for garlic pepper tea is really more for annuals, though I do use it as an addition to what Howard Garrett recommends. And it is Howard Garrett's garlic pepper tea, not Jack Spearguts. And I feel it's very important that we always give credit to people that, that have it coming. I have a link to a webpage on DirtDoctor.com, which is Howard Garrett's website, where he talks about feeding the soil and the and, and th four sprayings of your fruit trees. And if you'll do this, it works really, really well. And this is your first year, and it gets less um, complex and less expensive as you go. Um, I don't want to go through the whole thing because it's his thing and it's online. If you want to look it up, you can look it up. But... What he recommends spraying with is not really the garlic pepper tea. He recommends a spray of the Garrett juice that he tells you how to make, or you can buy it, uh, and cornmeal tea. And cornmeal is really effective at keeping a lot of these insects down. It's also very important to feed the soil. And what I want to talk about with feeding the soil is organic fertilizer and things like green sand and azomite and stuff that is in his list of stuff to do. It'll say something like apply azomite at 40 pounds per thousand square feet. And people start doing math and go, that's going to get expensive. Well, not so much, right? So think about breaking that down. And most of us plant trees in some kind of a row. Okay, so it may be in a windy, bendy row like um, a swale or maybe a straight row or something, but it's kind of a row or a strip pattern that we will use one way or another uh, in our tree planting. Well, a thousand, uh, sorry, uh, a thousand square feet would be 10 by 100, and you're talking about 40 pounds. Now, When you look at something like azimuth, you're talking about rock dust. 40 pounds of it, if you source it locally, is not very expensive. Uh, or they'll say something like 20 pounds for a uh, thousand square feet of organic fertilizer. Um, whole ground cornmeal at 20 pounds to a thousand square feet. These are first year recommendations to improve that soil and, and break pest cycles and, and what have you. It's, it's not really that much. And you don't necessarily have to do as much as he says. If you have kind of isolated trees, you can kind of work out the math and do it, you know, a little bit like say double what the current root zone is around that tree, and to start develop that. Um, there's a lot of other things that you can do. Kalion clay actually is pretty effective at shutting down insect activity, uh, what have you. In the end. What I'm going to say is if you're not going to use chemicals, you're going to have some insect damage, and it's not that terrible. 
And sometimes it seems really bad, like the first year you get production out of a peach tree, because you get like 40 peaches off the whole tree, and like 30 of them are riddled with worms. But if you're pruning, and you know, pruning is very important here as well, and, and, and maintaining the shape of the tree. I let a peach tree get out of, out, of, out of control with myself this year, and I have two big limbs full of peaches. And when I say big limbs, I'm talking the base of these limbs are as big around as my wrist, that have just fallen to the ground, and they're kind of still attached And they're still alive, but they're really going to have to go. And they're just covered in peaches. I'm just letting them go. Uh, and, and hoping to get some peaches off them. At least, you know, peaches that will be good enough quality to make things like peach brandy and, and peach uh, mead. Uh, those, those, that, but that tells you kind of like the abundance that's coming. And so when you start getting that level of production, you know, you're producing 200 peaches from a tree or 150 peaches from a tree. And 20 or 30 of them are just not really any good. You, you stop caring. It stops being that big a deal. And then realize these little worms and stuff to get into peaches. You take a knife and you just cut off parts that are good and, and, and throw away the, the ruined part to the chickens or what have you. And that's a great supplemental feed for them. So I recommend Howard Garrett's program to you. And he does have a lower cost option. Now, obviously, that won't work as good. Uh, but it'll work to a degree. So it's, it's kind of up to you, and, and that's where I'm going to direct you for more on that because Howard has been doing this since almost since I was born, and he, he's got his shit together, and he knows what he's talking about. So that's my recommendation there. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is A.A. Foringer, the writer. Two questions very much related to each other. Do you have business cards, and what do they say, and who do you hand them out to under what circumstances? And the second question is, I just bought a Ridge wallet with a money clip, and I realized, what the heck do I do with my business cards now? Thanks, Jack. Again, this was A.A. Foringer, the writer. So let's talk about the business cards at first. So in the business that I'm in, I, I don't have a whole lot of like referral-based business the way that a plumber would, where somebody would want my card to give to somebody. Um, most of my referrals come one form or another online. Somebody posts me in a forum, tags me on Facebook, re retweets what I have on social media, that type of thing. Uh, but I do have business cards, and we'll get to that in a second. But I think that the the the, the type of person that benefits the most from a business card and everybody benefits it's in business but the most is the type of thing where i really need someone to oh i have so and so's card i i mean that is i i can't tell you how many times i've gotten a referral to somebody and they didn't even hand their person's card because they had one but they went and they got the guy's card this is his card and i'll take a picture of it right And, and, and then I'll, you know, use that person for some kind of work. For instance, recently, um, we had a situation with our septic backing up and the septic people came in. It turned out it wasn't really a septic problem. It was a line problem. It was a line that ran from uh, our house to the solids tank had been clogged. Uh, the septic people were able to unclog it with a fish tape, like acting like a snake, but it really needed a true snaking. And when the plumber came out, they put a camera in there, and it looked like a fat guy's artery going to his heart with, you know, 40 years of caked-on crud. So they had this special 
jet sprayer, like pressure washer, that goes inside and has a camera. They spray wash off all of this gunk off the pipe so it wouldn't clog again. Now, I got that plumber because somebody referred them to us. And that's the kind of thing, like, I need this. Oh, this person said that, like, you're on it, right? Like, because you don't know who to call. So the fact that your next-door neighbor said, I use these people and they work, that's like gold in the bank right there to you. On the other hand, I have freaking dog-eared, crumbled-up business cards for people all over the freaking place and a little box of them here and there. And this is 2018 in the electronic era, so... Um, there are times, like, I have a picture of my business card on my phone, and I'll meet someone and they'll say, well, do you have a card? And I'll say, hold, oh, here you go, and I will basically text them a picture of my card. Then they have my number, they can make a contact entry, and they have a picture of my card. The other thing is I have the Ridge Wallet cell phone case, and you can tuck a couple cards in there. You mentioned you had the Ridge Wallet with um, the money clip, I checked mine, and no, a business card won't fit in the Ridge Wallet, but you know, a couple, three business cards in that clip will fit just fine with either cash or nothing else. I've actually gone, I carry my cash separately in a different pocket, kind of in a little, you know, a small fold, uh, so that my money and my wallet are separated type of thing, and I just think that's a good security measure. And I take that clip, and I actually clip it almost like it's a knife, to the inside of my pocket. And people say, well, what if somebody's going to you know, pickpocket that? First of all, it looks more like a knife than a wallet. Second of all, that clip's pretty damn strong, and I think that I would notice if somebody did that. I think that it's less likely that that front pocket clipped on thing would get pickpocketed from me than my back pocket. And I don't go a lot of places where pickpockets hang out, so you got to figure that out for yourself. As far as, like, me handing out business cards, it'll usually be something like this. I'll be somewhere and talking to somebody, and they'll say, well, what do you do? And then when I tell them, they're like, well, I'd like to check that out. Do you have a card? And if I have one on me or in the truck, I'll go grab it and give it to them. But a lot of times, I'll just, like I said, I'll text them a picture. Uh, and I mean, it's probably to the point now where we should be creating kind of a, uh, you know, a, a, an image that's specifically for that. And we're probably better off exchanging information that way. Because if I text you something, you can almost always find it. And if I give you a business card, it may be gone. So I'm not opposed to business cards. I still have them. I, I do think that they're not at the end of their useful life cycle. But we're getting closer to the point that they will be. Um, you know, you can have your contact details in your phone as your own contact and just send somebody a contact so that they can add you to their phone. To me, that's much more powerful. Because then they have the text and the created contact information. And most people, you know, they sync their phone, whatever. So even when they upgrade their phone, I have contact information in my phone that used to be on, you know, a Gen 1 iPhone. That I don't think you could find one anymore. I, I've got data on there. It probably came off like a freaking flip phone back when I had singular. Yeah, that's how long I've had the same phone number and and trade. So like, if I've done business with somebody, they're in there. 
Sometimes I just start flipping through my contacts and go, oh, shit, I wonder what John Burgoyne in New Jersey's up to. I'll send him a text and ask him if he's still out there schlepping test gear, you know, just to see. So, I mean, I think that's actually a better way to go. As far as what my business cards say, they have a picture of me because I'm a personality-based business. Um, they say Jack Spierko, speaker, author, consultant, the Survival Podcast. They give my uh, web URL, my phone number, my email address, and then they have the back printed with my three primary social media contact information, which is Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. That's what I have. But I, I've, I've moved more toward making my contact listing for myself really information-rich And just texting that. The other thing I've done, like if I'm in a hurry, that I think actually kind of creates bait to get people to check and follow up on it, is I have a short domain for the website. This is useful to those of you who maybe never heard it before. Because if you're on your phone and you want to go to the survivalpodcast.com and don't want to type that much, I have a short URL, tspc.co. And I'll text them that and I'll go, is that wrong? Is it, no, it's .co. Well, what does it mean? You have to go there and find out. You know, and so that gets them on my site, and then they can go from there and figure out what they want to do. Um, but uh, that—that's kind of the approach I take to this. I think we are moving, you know, forward with technology, and um, all things print are on the way out. Now, there's old guys like me that, you know, we're going to hold on to it every week. Uh, usually Tuesday morning, my little granddaughter comes toddling into my office. She's about to be two years old. And she's learning to help around the house. And she'll bring me a piece of paper, uh, usually two pieces of paper stapled together, which will be my interview for the week. And I have the exact same information in a folder in Outlook, because what happens when that guest survey comes in, uh, I'll forward that to Dorothy. And she prints it out. She takes care of booking, and then she puts it on my desk the day before my interview, any kind of updates, confirmation, change, etc. When I'm sitting here talking to a guest, I like to be able to pick up that old white and black piece of paper and make notes on it and stuff like that. I'm also in my mid-40s, and I grew up in a time when you didn't just have all this electronic stuff. People that are 20 years younger than I am and you are if you're my age, they don't have the attachment we do. And we can say all we want about I like the way a book feels and smells. I like to be able to write. It's all on the way out. We're gonna want it. We die, it's dying with our generation, man. So it is kind of time to grab onto that new world. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Garrett from New York. I'm looking for a solar-powered pump to move water about 80 feet in elevation. The details. I have a spring at the bottom of my property that flows at about two to three gallons per minute. I like to use this water to irrigate my garden and to water my chickens. Uh, I'm looking to put a cistern, uh, probably about a five to six hundred gallon cistern at the top of the property. I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for a pump that would meet this need. Thanks a lot. Love the show. So when you when you start talking about moving up 80 feet. Just assuming you're correct, uh, you're looking at a pump in the horsepower range of one and a half to two horsepower at, at minimum. And, you know, that's assuming it's 80 feet and not actually 120 feet. And if it is 80 feet, then I want a pump that has, you know, a head of 110, 120 feet to be comfortable because if it's got 80 feet ahead and you're at 80 feet, you got a piss trickle coming out the other end. 
Uh, and you'll, you look at he uh, head height of a pump. And if you look at head height to volume, you watch as the, as the, the head goes up, the volume that it can move goes down. Now, let's look at some basic power requirements here and figure in on about two horsepower a draw uh, versus output. You're looking at minimum just under 1,600 watts uh, this pump will draw. And some of these pumps to even be able to do this are like three-phase pumps. But we can do this with the right pump that has the head if we have AC. And we might be able to power that AC with solar. But as you can see, it's, it's a significant amount of power requirement. Now, we only need to keep the cistern full, so obviously this pump does not need to run constantly. Um, but we're not going to get enough power out of a, a, a moderate, moderate solar array to run directly off panels. So we're going to have to put batteries in, and we're going to have to create a system that works like this. The solar panels are there. They're charging the batteries. We have some sort of automation, monitoring, whatever. Uh, there's a float valve up in the cistern. That even allows the thing to kick in, and it's kind of on demand when that pump's open. Then that, or when that valve's down, that pump's willing to kick on, but there's no power there until a timer comes on and lets it run. And that pump also knows it's got a pressure sense on it that now it's not pumping anymore. It's been stopped, and it stops asking for power. And we're going to have to run, you know, probably several hundred to maybe even a thousand dollars worth of panels. You're going to be in this for your batteries for at least three or four hundred bucks. You're going to have to have a good inverter capable of handling that. So we're talking like minimum like a 2,000 watt inverter and a 3,000 watt inverter would be better. And, when I, and, and then we're going to have pipe and valves, and some cost of automation here, because, again, this is not going to be something that just runs constantly. We're going to have to put some kind of scheduling into it to make this work right. Translation. It will cost you less in all but the most extreme circumstances to run AC power to this location. And that probably isn't even the best option, because it's still going to cost. Now you're going to run that pipe, the valves, all that other stuff, and you got to get the electrical out there. The wire has a cost. This gets expensive quick. And, and I, I, I could be wrong, and I don't know. Maybe like what we're doing is it's like an 80-foot cliff. It's right there, and we're just going straight up, and it's a perfect setup, and there's a perfect solar aspect, and maybe it makes sense, but my gut says it doesn't. So when I start thinking about, like, well, what could you do? do for a couple thousand dollars that would solve your problem and do more for you, I think something that's probably, when I first say it, you're going to go, what? I think building. I think structure. And this could be a few hundred dollar structure to a few thousand dollar structure, depending on what makes sense for where you're at. But let's assume you don't want to build anything from scratch, and you want to use kind of off-the-shelf solutions here. Um, you can get, I looked up on Home Depot just for shits and giggles, a 10-foot by 14-foot steel shed that's like a kit that you put together, anybody can do it, even me, for 700 bucks. And 
you could spend about well, 50 bucks for gutters. And then if you pay full retail price at some place like Tractor Supply, you can get a black so it won't go skanky on you, um, purpose-made water tank, 1,100 gallons for 800 bucks, which is significantly larger than the cistern that you had mentioned you had planned. Uh, so all in, you're at like 1,100, 1,200 bucks. And whatever piping you're going to use to get the water to the other places is irrelevant in the comparison because, you know, you, you don't, you're going to do that anyway. Now, what this does is it gives you complete flexibility as to where you put that tank. As long as the top of the tank is below the ridge line of the roof, you can run gutters, rain chain, whatever, and you're doing rain catch now into that, and you've got rainwater. Now, I know you probably want your spring water because it's great water and all, but moving that water 80 feet, and then all you have is a solar array that pretty much only does that for you. It's not going to be a good backup power solution because of the, the requirements that are going to be on it, um, in, in my opinion anyway. It's not going to really help you where you would most need backup power because if it was close to your house, you'd just run AC for this thing in the first place. You're going to have a pump that can break, and, and they're expensive. I mean, the, the pumps to do what you're talking about are you know, $600 to $1,000 or more. And I have a link where you can check out some of the pumps that have this type of head capability. And then really all you have is water. If you take the approach of a shed, an outbuilding, whatever, up at this location, now you have a building plus the rain catch. Now you have a storage location. You could use, it could be a structure for your animals. It could be a simple pole barn type structure that you set up yourself that you know is made from some locust tree poles and some tin. You still have something that then... See, to me, this, this gives you what you want. I want water at this location that for one reason or another is difficult to get water to. But it gives you something else for the same price or dramatically less. And I mean, you could use some cheap... 275 to 330-gallon IBCs as your water reservoir and, and, and quickly get up into the 1,000-gallon range if you wanted to do this inexpensively. Uh, the you know open carport-type structures would be a good rain catchment option as long as there's such a structure that you can add uh, rain gutters to them. Uh, this all makes a ton of sense to me. And being able to hold water up high and gravity feed it elsewhere, I think that's awesome. But I think what you'll find is... Whatever amount of water you'll hold, you'll wish it was more. And with this type of setup again, as long as you got enough rainfall to roof catchment ratio, you just can add another tank and add another tank and add another tank, if you see what I'm saying. And I, I think this would work better for you. Now, if you want to clarify your situation a little bit for me, you can go ahead. But I think that the the cost and, and – I mean – Again, you're going to be building a structure. I'm assuming the reason you want to do this with solar is because it's not easy to run a power line to. I mean, if it's a 100-foot trench in anything but solid rock, throw some conduit in the ground, put some electricity out there, put a pump in and plug it in and go. The hell with solar in that application. It doesn't make sense. 
It's not the right application. So assuming that there's you know a reason you're doing solar, then when I look at it that way, I think you're better off with an approach that's more of a rain catchment approach. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Uh, this is David calling from Indiana. I'm calling about uh, the TP-Link wireless range extender that you talked about on episode 2185. Um, quick question. You um, talked about you have a metal building and you have problems with that, uh, so you leave the door open. I have the same situation, and I wonder if you know of a product that would allow me to use my wireless network from my house to my barn, which is about 100 feet away, and um, and without having the door open. Um, in other words, maybe have an antenna on the outside so that I can uh, turn it back into an Ethernet signal inside of the barn and also use it as a wireless signal in the barn. I'm doing some uh, crypto mining, and I want to keep the miners in the barn. But as you probably know, you have to have an Ethernet cable for that. So any ideas on that, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the great show. Thanks. Yeah, and I don't have a specific um, equipment recommendation on this one but I'm going to tell you what you want for this application and then you can find a piece of equipment or set set of equipment that will do what I'm going to tell you and the reason that I don't have like okay I think you should go buy this model and what have you is your situation's unique you need to do a little research and I haven't set one of these up for myself in so long the equipment that I used the last time I set one of this types of networks up is, is so outdated as to be unbelievable And this is, and I may have a specific recommendation in the future because this is really what I should do for for my own uh, benefit here uh, on my property. Because the wireless repeaters that I recommend that go with TP the TP Link router, they're an excellent solution for you know three or four people hanging out in your backyard. Uh, when I get 30, 40 people here, it really slams them, and they don't work very well because they're not really designed for that numerous number of people. Um, I don't mind leaving my door open for my own use and things like that, though. Okay, so what you want to do is a wireless point-to-point solution. And this is probably going to also use a technology called, called Power Over Ethernet. Now, don't let this scare you. You don't have to be a, a big-headed computer geek to do this. Most of the stuff, there's stuff that's designed to be plug-and-play at this point. Well, here's the basics of it. You'll have a connection that comes off a port on your router um, that, that, that basically takes one of those Ethernet ports and, and creates a network hotspot, so to speak. It's not the right term, but in layman's terms, it's the easiest way to explain it. And, and there'll be a cable, uh, an Ethernet cable, RJ45 connection runs out of there, and it may run to another box that runs this power over Ethernet stuff. And then that box will actually take power and send computer signal and power on the same cable to run the, the, the repeater. Um, and there'll be this transmitter, little antenna on it. That'll need to go on the outside of your house. So you'll have to do this. To do this right, you'll need to run a wire from your router to the exterior of your home somehow. And the main reason I haven't done this yet is it's kind of a pain in the butt for me to do. And I really need to get over that and just do the work and get it done. And then that transmitter is going to sit out on your house somewhere. And it's going to be able to communicate from that, that transmission point back to your router. 
and then there'll be another one that looks just like it, like it on the other side. And really, both of them transmit and receiver wouldn't work. But think of it as the receiver to keep this in your head simplistically. And it's going to sit there. It's going to be on the outside of that building where you're also going to need a penetration. And there'll be an RJ45 Ethernet cable that'll come out of there and run into your interior space. And then there'll be some sort of a device in there uh, that will connect to that receiver transmitter that's on the outside of that building. And that will create for you both a wireless hotspot in there, basically, to think of it that way. You'll have a, a, a wireless access point to that device. And you'll have the ability to plug straight into it and have a wired connection to that device, to any other wired device, and then transmit and receive between the two point-to-point -point apparatuses. Some of them will allow you to make those point-to-point -point transmitters and receivers also accessible as a like a wireless type repeater. Some of them do not. So that's what you're looking for. So the, the way to start your search here is go on Amazon and look for wireless point-to-point -point and start doing some research on the different options that are available to you. The key is that they need to be able to see each other to work best. Uh, if there's a large obstruction, they may not work at all. Usually this is not a problem, and some of them have range that is e extreme. Doing it across a property is generally not hard. The only problem would be if you have like a house, an outbuilding with a mountain in the middle. Now we got a problem. But as long as we can get some level line of sight between those two locations, distance, unless you, you know, if you live in a place where distance is a problem, if there's no options for you, you got so much money, you don't need to worry about it if that's how much land you have. You'll find another solution. Um, that, that, that's the kind of range we're talking about here. So let, let's, let's send you kind of down that road. You look for, again, a wireless point-to-point -point system that has the ability, because it sounded like you don't just want wireless connection out there. You want to be able to actually jack in on a hard line to something that has that on that, on that other end, has the ability to plug in. And most, and you will be able to find this likely in a kit. You'll be able to find, and I looked a couple today, and it wasn't hard to find, and I'm like, that would probably work, that would probably work. I don't want to specifically make a recommendation on something that's network-related that I haven't used. So if anybody's got a setup like this, and you could say, this equipment right here is a good recommendation, please put it in the show notes today for this, 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 this gentleman, and, and, and maybe I'll use it too and take a look at it for my own needs. Uh, with that, let's take another one. Jack, what do you recommend for a pellet gun for killing squirrels? Um, specifically uh, in the backyard, 10 to 20 yards, typical distance, like something quiet so the neighbors don't complain. Um, I had a savage, uh, I guess, break action that was okay, but I broke the front side off it and... It was just okay because sometimes it wouldn't kill them, so they'd run away sometimes. So looking for something with a little more killing power, and uh, but also quiet. So whatever you can recommend, and would a scope make sense for squirrels since they're, you know, I, I don't know if I'm trying for a headshot. Um, thanks a lot. Bye. 
So, um, first of all, yes, you're looking for headshots. If you're shooting squirrels with a pellet gun, you're looking for headshots. And I'm not saying if you shoot a squirrel you know, through the lungs with a pellet gun, you won't likely die. It probably will. But you're consistent. Hit the squirrel, flip him out of the tree, he's dead, shot, is, you know, in the head. And that's best for a variety of reasons in all instances, including using a .22. The reason I say that is I have hit squirrels, you know, kind of behind the shoulder in like that classic deer hunter shot with a .22 and have them go somewhere. Um, I've even had some make it like into uh, a hole of a tree. And, you, you, I mean, you could see them in the scope get hit like right in the money. And sometimes they drop stone dead, and sometimes they go. And if you think about that, that's kind of crazy on a scale model situation with how tough a squirrel is. If you think about the size of a deer's chest cavity, and you think about the size of a squirrel's chest cavity, you think of something 22 caliber going through and through there, and without the explosive nature of something like a 50 cal, just a slow-moving projectile that just bores its way through... You know, it'd be like a deer getting hit with a freaking two-inch ball or something, and then going somewhere with a you know. Think about like maybe even a soft, like four-inch softball size hole relative to the size of the animal. They're tough. I've hit squirrels with with high brass six shot out of a shotgun. You know, where they're straight overhead and you hit them through the belly. So and you you know you hit full pattern, uh, butt to head from underneath. And I've had them freeze up and kind of grab on and start shaking. You know, and you're thinking, I really don't want to shoot this animal again. You wait a little bit, and they finally bleed out eternally, and they drop. And you think, man, I must have not really got a full pattern on that thing. You take it home and skin it, and there's 30 or 40 pellets in it, and they're all on the, the, you know, they're all on the back skin. So they passed all the way through the body, and that lost enough velocity going through the squirrel's body for the back layer of skin to stop them. When you skin them, they're all laying there between the skin and the... And the so they're tough animals. So a 177 pellet will work fine on a squirrel, but I'm going to steer you toward a 22. And, and I do have a few recommendations for you from uh, an air rifle standpoint. Uh, I was going to mention the Gamma Whisper and several versions thereof. I started doing some research on it for you, and I found that it is not much quieter than the Crossman Nitro Venom that I recommend. And it costs significantly more to not be quieter. I even found a video where it's got that supposed silencer on it, and this guy takes it and cuts the silencer off and uses a decibel meter and sets the decibel meter where he is, like where his ears are, and it, it is a little louder with the silencer off. But when you actually move the decibel meter out to like where your neighbors would be, it actually got louder with the silencer off. So basically the silencer on that particular gun doesn't work. So it's only about 3 or 4 dB quieter than the Nitro Venom, which I'm a big fan of. I'll tell you why you may not agree here in a second, though, when I give you some other information. But... The Gamo, uh, I'm sorry, the Cross, Crossman Nitro Venom in 22 caliber is squirrel dynamite. I know, I've done it. You hit them in the head with it, it's like a sledgehammer hit them out of the sky, and they're done. Um, and I have found mine to be quite accurate. The next step up, and everything that I looked at, and actually fulfilling its promises, 
is the Benjamin NP2 trail, the Benjamin Trail NP2. It has an integrated silencer that actually runs the length of the barrel with multiple baffles in it that really works. It's in the neighborhood of 60 to 70 decibels, which you're probably listening to me at about that or a little higher right now. It's pretty daggone quiet. It's also a brake barrel design, hence it's fairly heavy, like the Nitro and most brake barrel guns, like the one that you had. Um, but it's very quiet, it's very accurate, it's very powerful uh, for a 22 pellet gun. And then if you wanted to step way up, and this is a significant step up in cost, uh, to the neighborhood of about $300, plus you're going to need a pump, Uh, the For the backyard, quiet, urban world, I would recommend, believe it or not, it's called the Gamo Urban. And it's a pre-charged pneumatic. Hence, you're going to need a pump that's going to be $100, $200 or more, or some kind of dive tanks or something like that to be able to charge it. Um, it is whisper quiet. I've watched a couple different videos of people shooting it, and the... One guy was shooting little metal silhouettes, and the sound of the pellet hitting the metal silhouette was louder than the gun. It's powerful, but it's not as powerful as the other two ones that I recommended. It shoots around 500 feet per second with standard 22 pellets. However, if you hit a squirrel in the head with a 22 pellet at 500 feet per second, it's a dead squirrel. Uh, pellets kill more on impact than they do penetration when we're shooting small game with them. Uh, they, they, it's like being punched by a really big guy really hard in a very small area. And, and having a pellet that goes in and maybe even stay, you know, completely go through is actually beneficial, especially on a headshot. You're talking about major squirrel brain trauma going on here. Um, so if, if I was going to buy a new pellet gun right now, I would save my pennies, and that's what I would buy. When I saw this thing, in fact, sometimes I hate when you guys ask me these questions and I have to do research because I'm like, oh, there's another toy I want to buy. Oh, there's another freaking toy I want to buy, right? And I think this thing would be really cool. I don't really need to worry about the sound out here. I've got a couple different pellet guns. Hell, I can shoot a .22 out here. Um, I really don't need to do this, but part of me kind of wants to. It, it, it looks that good. and it, it's, uh, it's made in the U.K. I have links to all of these guns on Amazon so you can see them. In, on the Amazon uh, description, it says it's made in Spain. I have verified that is not true. This is made in the United Kingdom. Uh, the PCP air rifles are huge in the U.K. with all their gun control issues for people that want to go out. And, like, one of the big things that they hunt there is actually pigeons, uh, rabbits, and squirrels. Those are the things that are big, but really big on the pigeons. Every other farmer will let you in to shoot pigeons because they're pests and a pain in the ass. They're good eating, that type of thing. And so it's a big thing there. And uh, this is made to that type of a specs, and it's the advantage of it, instead of like that one big hard cock of the, of the barrel, it's a bolt action, uh, multi-shot repeater. And it is very, very quiet and very, very accurate. But you'll be into it as much as you would be for a good quality centerfire rifle by the time you get everything you need. Uh, but those are the three that I would look at and make a decision from based on my recommendations. And stay away from the Gamma Whisper. It's bullshit. It's all marketing. It's all hype. It's the sound is different, but it's just as loud. Um, okay, so that's that's my thoughts there. Now, I have links with each gun to a guy that does professional air gun reviews. I think is the name of his channel on YouTube. He does 
velocity testing and accuracy testing, and he's the first person to tell you the numbers on the box are probably not the numbers the gun's going to put out from a velocity standpoint. He really liked the Benjamin NP2, though he said all the numbers on the box from the marketing are bullshit. He had some issues with it, but, you know, you're still talking about a gun that's a couple hundred bucks. He did not like, overall, the Crossman Nitro Venom. He had consistent issues trying to get consistent accuracy from his. I'm always skeptical, except I know this guy is solid. When people say they have problems with break-action uh, rifles, um, especially the Nitro Pistons, they require a break-in period, and they require a little bit different technique to get the most accuracy out of them. This guy can shoot, and shoot that type of gun. Um He may have gotten a lemon, you know, I mean, that's just the case. And if you get the gun from Amazon and you give it a good 300 pellet break-in and you are not happy with your results, you can return it. So I would say that I would not write it off on his review, but I did include his review. Uh, the NP2, again, trail from Benjamin, he loved that one. He explained where the marketing didn't match the reality, but he definitely would have recommended that. And the Gamo Urban, he loved it. And I can see why. So I checked those videos out, and that's where I would start. But squirrel hunting with a pellet gun, scope, yes. And this is one of my, you mentioned your sight got broke off. I, 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 I really wish that all of these pellet gun makers would stop using these plastic freaking fiber optic sights on their freaking guns. Everyone I've ever owned, sooner or later, just by setting it up against the wall or something, that sight's been busted on me. And so I'm big on scopes for this anyway because it's precision work. But uh, you, you, if anybody out there is in the industry, and you know any of these people involved in making these decisions, the nylon fiber optic sights on the air guns have got to go away. You're talking about guns that weigh eight, nine, ten pounds. So th there's a, a significant impact when your 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 nephew uses it and just leans it up against the wall. They always break. Stop using them. Go back to freaking metal sights. And if you insist on doing fiber optics, use a metal housing. Or use a heavy, you know, use something like the nylon trigger guards on the Ruger 1022s that's actually robust. Because I haven't found one yet that doesn't suck. Sorry for my little vent there. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Mason in Holly Springs. I uh, really enjoyed your episode on wicking beds and wanted to know what your thoughts would be on using a wicking bed as a component in a gray water system, maybe even kind of a stealthy gray water system, something as simple as running a hose from the discharge of your washing machine into uh, a wicking bed system. Anyway, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. So the answer is yes, you can, but you may want to think about it a little bit differently than if you were just plumbing water straight into a wicking bed. So when we use gray water, we're talking about soap. Uh, we're talking about oils and grease. We're talking about human skin follicles. We're talking about all kinds of stuff, right? Detergents and whatever. And we can use biodegradable stuff. We probably should. Uh, even if we're not doing what you're asking about. But I think it's best to kind of go with the philosophy that you'll see in earth ships in how they deal with gray water. And what they'll have is a gray water, you know, gravel type bed. And then they'll grow something in there that's like a non-edible. Something like reeds, cattails, something like that. Something's very good at taking up nutrient, uh, grows very fast. 
uh, uses a lot of water. And then they'll overflow that into productive wicking beds. And, and one way or another, that's the approach that I would look toward taking. I have a, a, a YouTube video for you from one guy that basically built like a multi-barrel system uh, where the uh, gray water flows through multiple barrels and then discharges. Uh, that could be discharged into a wicking bed of some sort. The one issue that you're going to have here is that Unless you have elevation working to your advantage, in other words, your house is elevated enough from surrounding land that you can use the fall of the land to move water, you're starting out with the water in a fairly low position, meaning you have no real head. Because uh, the way that I would do this if I had a decent landfall away from the house, basically I would dig a pit just on the outside, wherever it was most convenient to put it, where it wasn't in the way and didn't cause any problems, where I could get the water to come out of the house instead of go down to the septic or, or to the sewer. And I would divert all of the stuff that's not black water to that location or multiple locations if I had to, if it made it easier. Uh, a lot of times things like your washing machine is really easy to divert more so than, let's say, your sink or your bathrooms, and that's a significant amount of water. And I would divert it into there, And I would set it up so that the intake and the outtake were not at the same level. So the outtake was lower. And then I would use gravity so that when that thing overflowed, it would then go down to another group of wicking beds where I would be growing herbs, vegetables, fruits, something. And, and that's the approach I would take. And I think that you'll, you'll be happier and have less risk of maybe creating some stuff that you don't want to be where you're growing food. And you do need to think about the fact that if, if it's not just your washing machine, right? If we're talking about the sink, every time someone takes a shower, it's a significant amount of water, and you need a reservoir that's able to hold most of it and then discharge it because you're going to fill it up. And basically what you're, you're creating here is a gray water septic system. And so let's talk a little bit about how a septic system works, because over the past couple of months with problems with mine, I've learned more than I really wanted to know. So a, a typical septic system, and I'm talking about a, a standard one, not one with misters and sprayers and sprinklers on it, works very, very passively. And what you have is two tanks and what they call a leach field. And in your first tank, you have a solids tank. And this is where everything goes, your poop and all that nastiness. And it sits in there, and it breaks down biochemically. And as it breaks down, it then allows clear water to flow into what you call your liquid tank. And that's not the greatest water in the world, and it doesn't smell very good, but it is in general clear. It should be clear, and so no solids should be in your liquid tank. And then your liquid tank overflows into a series of pipes that are perforated and laid out in what they call your leach field and basically spreads that water out so it doesn't consolidate in one place into that leach field. What you're talking about doing here is kind of the same thing. You're using your initial reed bed as your solids tanks for all, for all the skin cells and little bits of stuff that got washed down the sink and all end up in that gravel and they end up getting broken down so that what comes out of it is, is, is clear liquid. And it may not be the greatest liquid in the world to drink or something like that, but it's plenty good enough for your plants. 
And then instead of having a leach field after your solids tank, your, your liquid tanks become a grouping or one very large wicking bed that that fluid's going to to be used by the plants. And then we can even let a final point of overflow and spread into the ground or even take just a perforated piece of drain pipe, say 12, 20 feet long, and trench that in the ground and let that overflow to there so that we don't have a big wet spot if we have a bunch of company and a lot of people shower. And, and so that's the approach I would take. And, and if you start doing some research on, on YouTube and look for gray water planters, gray water reed beds, gray water wicking beds, and start looking at the types of systems that the Earthship folks do, I think you'll be able to come up with something that will work for you. But again, it's moving the water. Because the other option then would be to create some kind of a sump with a pump, and it seems complicated at that point. So hopefully you have enough gravity operation here to make this work for you. Anyway, I hope that helps, and we have wrapped up another episode of the show. I do hope you enjoyed today's show, and if you did, you might want to consider supporting us. There's two main ways that you can do that. The first way is that you can become a member. That's the best way to support us. If it wasn't for the members that support this show, this show wouldn't be heading for its 10th year in less, well, no, see, one month and three days, we'll have our 10-year anniversary. And I'd like to thank every single person that is a member or has ever been a member of this show for helping me make the Survival Podcast into about the only thing I've ever done professionally in my life for a decade. I think the only thing I've ever done for a decade, uh, other than being human, is be a husband and a father. Uh, I don't think there's anything else I've done for a decade. I've always gone off and done something else and got bored and wanted to start a new company and sell this one off. When I started doing this, I found my life's work. And, and, and by God, thank all of you for, for helping me make it. And if you'd like to be part of that, Become a member. It's easy. Go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on members to learn more. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders, active duty or prior service, you guys qualify for a discount. Just send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'll get you that discount code. Do that before, not after you join. Uh, everybody else, you can just go there and sign up. You'll get discounts that will pay for your membership, and you help support this show. And let's make another decade of TSP happen. I want to be able to one day get on the air and say, this is the only thing I've ever done for 20 years other than be a father and a husband. I don't really want to do anything else for the rest of my life. On that note, we are going to do an event for our 10th year anniversary. It won't be on June 20th. It won't even be June. Uh, we'll just be getting back from Florida around that time. We need some recovery time, and, and July is pretty stacked. Uh, it's going to be in August, either first or second week of August. It'll probably be somewhere in downtown Fort Worth. And what we're thinking about doing is getting like a private room at a restaurant and be close proximity walking to hotels and stuff like that. Maybe go invade, invade the Bird Cafe's uh, terrace after uh, we, we wrap up at wherever we do this. And, and Dorothy and I will, out of you know our, our pocket, provide hors d'oeuvres and uh, appetizers and stuff for everybody. And then if you want any additional food, you buy it, and drinks will be, you know, we'll have a waiter, a waitress, bartender, that type of thing. That's what it looks like we're doing now. We looked at doing a hotel type thing, and they just rape you in every way that's possible. They really do. Um, so that's probably going to be the best thing we can do. So 
you know, start thinking ahead if you want to come to that. I think it'll probably be mostly local people, but anybody's welcome to come. But we're going to try to make it a big celebration. And we just realized we should, we should celebrate 10 years of TSP. And again, to my members that have supported us, thank you. The other way you can support us is just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. You do that, you help support our show no matter what you buy. Uh, today, my review item for you at Amazon is mono price releasable cable ties. And most of you guys know what cable ties. We also call them zip ties. Um, these guys are awesome, man. Um, basically, it's a zip tie with a release tab on it. And if you think about how useful a cable tie or a zip tie is, imagine you can reuse it without cutting it off. And, I mean, I use these things constantly for everything. And it's very seldom that I zip tie something and never need to move it or change it. And these are black, so they're UV resistant. Uh, and they're like seven bucks in change for a hundred of them. I've brought these around a bunch of times, and there's a reason. On pure utility, they're one of the most valuable things you can get for under ten bucks out there. They belong in your EDC kit. There should be a little bundle of them in your glove box of your truck, in your car, your boat, whatever, your toolbox, your tackle box. There ain't nobody out there that's ever said, you know what, I've never needed a, a, a zip tie in my life and, and not had one. Everybody's been in that position thinking, if I just had a zip tie, I could fix this. I'll tell you a real quick story that's in the review. A buddy of mine and me, we're in the Army together, a third buddy too. Uh, there's a buddy named Brad and the other buddy's named Dean. And Dean had a truck, a little Ford Ranger. And Brad and I used to drive that truck like we stole it, even though Dean let us borrow it. And Dean drove it worse than we did. And one day we needed to get some beer, so Brad and I were going to go to the store and get some beer, and Dean just threw Brad the keys, and we get in the truck and go hauling ass cross post, and we get some beer and come back, and we get back, and Dean goes, probably should have told you to take it a little bit slower in the truck than normal. Okay, Dean, what'd you do? He said, I had to fix the tie rod with tie wraps. What the hell are you talking about, Dean? So we looked under the truck, and the tie rod that attached to the, the driver's side tire had literally come apart. And Dean had taken four tie wraps, heavy-duty ones, but tie wraps, and tie wrapped tie rod back together. You don't know about trucks and cars and stuff. Tie rod is actually what allows the controlling of the steering of the wheel. So if that breaks, that wheel just kind of going left and right back. It don't have no control. It's not good when you're doing high-speed turns if that happens. falls apart. They held... Oh, Brad almost killed Dean. We all laughed about it later because when you're 20, you're stupid. But uh, it did show me the utility of them. I, I probably would do that to limp down the road or limp off the road to a parking lot and get proper help. I probably wouldn't do it the way we did it back then. But if it can do that, it can MacGyver you out of a lot of situations. Check them out again, releasable cable ties, and you can always help us by shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. Our song of the day is by Toto, and it's called Home of the Brave. This was released, I believe, in 86, somewhere in the 80s, and when you hear the music, it couldn't be from any other decade. Um, it, it's an interesting song. On one level, it's kind of a over-the-top, blind patriotism song, if you take it that way. On the other hand, it really isn't. talks about how important it is. That in this country, you have the freedom to learn anything you want and to say anything that you want. And it doesn't really name anybody as the enemy, but if you think about mid-80s and coming out uh, with a pro-American song, the whole Soviet bloc, we were still in the Cold War, the uh, Berlin Wall hadn't come down yet, we were still you know, worried about nuclear war, and it'd be easy to see it that way. 
When I look at it that way, when I look at the things that it's really saying are good about America, though, I really see our greatest enemies are within. And it's almost a very prophetic song. If you look around today with all the silencing people want to do, um, somebody made a comment on the YouTube video that John Adams sent me that goes with this song, and he said something about the effect of, you know, you have the right to say anything you want, but what about when people want to ban what you have to say? And uh, a guy responded to him and said, the First Amendment isn't about protecting your right to be racist. Really? Because I think racists are scum, but I don't agree with his claim. The First Amendment is about the protection of unpopular speech, including hate speech. Unless you're inciting violence or causing harm, you have a right in our country to say anything you want. And my response to somebody like that is, racism, pure unadulterated racism, is one of the easiest arguments to intellectually counter that exists. And all these social justice warrior assholes that want to silence other people are basically saying one of two things. Your argument, whatever it is, is something I cannot intellectually counter. I cannot present my side strongly enough to win people over that I'm right and you're wrong, or I'm too lazy to do that. And in most instances, if it's a legitimate concern, they're too lazy to. Racism is a perfect example. If you can't win an intellectual argument against a racist, you either have an IQ of 14 or you're too damn lazy. And that's probably why you're living in your parents' basement and want somebody to pay off your student loans for you. But that's what the First Amendment's about, is protecting the right of the person to say something that is not popular, that does have opposition. If not, we wouldn't need it. We wouldn't need a right to free speech if the only thing it protected was speech that didn't hurt anybody's feelings. Speech that didn't make anybody butthurt. Speech that didn't make anybody uncomfortable. And to me, what this song is really about, from those lines is about the freedoms that we enjoy in this country because they're protected, not provided. And that we must be vigilant at all time to protect them. The other thing is that there's a lot of, haven't we seen this before? And there's so many times that people said it's the end of America. America will never be the same. We'll never recover. Blah, 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 blah. Freaking Eeyore. You can look at it through the current generation of mind-numbingly stupid twits and think, we're screwed. Let me tell you something. People felt like that about my generation, but most of us were not the ones they were focused on. And people felt like that about my parents' generation, and most of them were not the ones that were being focused on. We focused on the idiots, because it makes us feel better to know that they're stupid and we're not. This country has a lot of life left in it. Our future has a lot of bright left in it. As long as we hold on to it, and we don't let anybody take it away. Home of the Brave by Toto. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Hell, when you figure out how to live that better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't.
There's no need to cry now We're not running anymore 